Please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1 is where we are. Before I dismiss the kids, let me just, let me just say this. 1 Samuel chapter 31 we looked at last week and 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're in the midst of this transition of the book uh, that's taking place and, and this royal leadership of Israel is being changed. As I said earlier, remember the, 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 the book of Samuel is one book in the Hebrew canon. So that's very important as we look to this text this morning. Children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. And we are in 2 Samuel chapter 1. For those of you who care, uh, the book was broken into two books back in 3 BC. Uh, uh, yeah, three, around 3rd three, uh, century BC. Um, when, the, when the Hebrew text was translated into the, to the Greek text. It was quite some time ago. But anyway, that was for free. I'm sure that meant a lot to you this morning. I'd want to know that. When did that happen? But it's important to know, as you're reading the Bible, just on a side note, again, this is free as well. Um, when you're reading books of the Bible, and hopefully you are, you're in, your, you're in the Word, um, recognize that the, that, that the chapter divisions and the... Um, verse divisions with the numbers and the letters is all put in later on um, that it, it's, it's not something so when you're reading try, try to remember that you're reading through the chapters recognizing this was all put in for man because if I said open up to Samuel where it says this it would take you an hour to find out where I'm talking about it's easy to say chapter 2 so again that's free you're welcome um, the focus on 2 Samuel as we look into this book is David and David's reign in his kingdom it's really a book concerning David and his reign. And, and the book opens up in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel with David hearing some devastating news, and we'll see that in a minute. As I said last week, 1 Samuel chapter 31, the last chapter of 1 Samuel, kind of connects the first chapter of 2 Samuel because David hears about what took place in chapter 31, that Saul was killed. And now... In chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, I'm going to try to keep this right, David mourns and he laments at the passing of the king. Remember, Saul has been trying to kill David at every turn, and David now is forced, forced to flee his family, uh, his community, the places in Israel where his family was and his wife was, and he's been driven into the wilderness for quite some time. And he's been running from Saul for a long period of time. And one might expect when he hears the, the news that Saul is now dead, there would be rejoicing, but he doesn't do that. David is a man who is waiting upon the Lord. David is a man who, who is looking to the will of the Lord and waiting for God to fulfill his own promises rather than doing it himself. That, that should speak to us even this morning. And I would like to think, and I want to take a sidestep here and get a little political, and I do that from time to time. I would like to think, no matter what your political views, you would recognize the mourning of a public leader of our nation has, has died, and they would bring mourning. Like some of you have been through that. I was too young when JFK, uh, John F. Kennedy was shot, but there's, there's this sense of, of, of mourning over the loss of our leaders. Now, despite all the crazy people that want our presidents dead, because there are some out there, whether it's President Trump, whether it's Obama, whether it's Bush or Clinton, there's a sense of national loss, right? We, the people of God, recognize that life is precious. That every man, every woman, every child, everyone unborn in the womb is created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. And like the Apostle wrote, we are to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the president. Regardless of who's in office, we've got to be very careful. David will mourn. <coughs> the leader of Israel is dead. The one who's trying to kill him every chance he gets. He weeps and he grieves over him. First Samuel ends with the death of Saul and, op and his sons and opens with David who's back in Ziklag and he hears of this news. Three very simple movements in our text. I'm going to read part of the text in a minute. David hears the news, and it's devastating news, of the death of the king. <laughs> the dreadful ending, because the one who comes and tells David this good news, it doesn't turn out the way he thought it was going to turn out. And finally, the stressed lament. David will, will write this beautiful lament. Grief, distress, in chapters 2, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 17 and following. 
So here, the Word of God, the infallible, authoritative Word of God. And what I want to do, I'm going to read our text this morning. I'm just going to read chapter, uh, uh, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, verse 1, through chapter 6, uh, verse 16, 1 through 16. And then when we get to 17, we'll read it in, in, in its, in its, um, when I get there. 2 Samuel, hear the Word of the Lord, verse 1 of chapter 1. After the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him, and when he looked behind him, he saw me. He called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So, so I stood beside him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore it. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And, and he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Devastating news. The chapter opens up with David. We had left off David. If you remember, David was, David had taken refuge with the Philistines. He had manipulated way into the community, got a piece of land, Ziklag, and actually manipulated the king of the Philistine cities to believe or to think that he was for them. And by the providence of God, when it was time to fight the Israelites, when the Philistines went against Israel, by the providence of God, David was excused, uh, actually rejected, chapter 29, by the military leaders. So David is with the army, living in, 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 army, in, in enemy territory, in Gath, in a Philistine city, the king says, hey man, you're my man. We're going to fight Israel. Come with us. Chapter 29, the military leaders come and go, you know what? We don't trust that guy, rightfully so. He's not coming with us. He's an Israelite. His name is David. We know about that guy. Send him home. And they send him back home. In chapter 30, he goes back to Ziklag. Remember what he finds. He finds the city burned to the ground. He finds everybody missing, gone. All the women, all the children were taken captive. And, 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 and after he just breaks out in this weeping and crying for the city, he, he, he seeks the favor of God. He seeks the guidance of God. And God gives him the go-ahead to go and find out who did this and attack the people and get your family and friends back. Who, who is the one that David seeks after? Who is the one, who are the ones to whom attacked the city? The Amalekites. Interesting enough. The Amalekites were responsible for the burning of Ziklag, David's city, and taking David's wives, his children, and all the men's wives and children. David attacks. 
David has victory. David releases the captive. David gets all his stuff, his spoils back, and some. And remember, we've been saying that as David is, is conquering the Amalekites, as David is getting back and having victory, and all this is going on, David, the soon-to-be king, is, is contrasted with Saul, the now king, who is seeking who? A witch, a medium, guidance from the dead. Saul had failed to be the obedient king that God required of him, and therefore God chose David to be king of Israel. The Lord's choice of David was in complete contrast of the one when, was, when he picked Saul. Remember, Saul was God's choice because it was a response to Israel's disobedience. Their demand to have a king like all the other kings. David was chosen, it says, according to his own heart, the Lord has sought for himself a man. God, God was not giving the people what they had asked for in David, but was giving them a man that God was going to change by grace. And by placing these two stories side by side, alongside one another, the narrator wants us to see that, that Saul's defeat and Saul's death in chapter 31 is not the end of the story, right? We talked about this last week. God is not done. There's always hope for God's people. I love that we're singing a new song. We sang it last week. I believe we're singing it next week. Uh, the Living Hope. And one of the, one of the, one of the verses in that new song I, I just love, it says, the work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. The end is written in God's economy. The end is written in God's providence. Jesus Christ is the living hope. David returns to Ziklag. It's the third day. He's in the city. He brought back his family. And in comes a dude, rolls into town. He's, he, he's wearing all the signs of genuine grief. And his clothes are, ter- uh, are torn. There's dirt on his head. Now remember, as David's in the city, and I want you to see this, he's not sure what happened in the battle. He knows there was a battle. David, had, David knew that the Philistines were heading north to fight Saul and the army when they sent them home to Ziklag. David knew what was happening. David knew that there was going to be a battle that was going on, but he was, he had been, he was sent in the opposite direction, you remember. The, 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 the Philistines and their army went north to Gilboa. David went south to Ziklag. So David, while all this is going on, while he's fighting the Amalekites, while all this is going on, he's getting back the spoils, his children, his wife, and he's, and he's in the city. You've you got to think that David is wondering what happened. What happened to the people of God? What happened to Saul, my father-in-law? What happened to my friend Jonathan as he's back in Ziklag on the third day? And when this guy rolls into camp, before he could say anything, look what he does. Verse 2, he falls to the ground and pays homage. We don't know his name at this point. We'll never know his name. And he pays homage to David. He, he claims... He, that he escaped from the camp of Israel, and his actions uh, 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 not only recognized the new king, because look what it says, David says, where'd you come from? I, I came from the camp, I came from Israel. And then he pays homage. He, he, he's looking for something. He, 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 he's, he's paying respect for the new king, as sort of looking for a reward, because we find out later that this man falling down at David's feet is, is thinking that he's bringing good news to the new king. How do I know that? 2 Samuel 4. David's speaking to two men. He says this, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every advers- adversity, the one who told me, Behold, Saul is dead. David is rec- re- talking about this incident. He says, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news to me. This guy falls on the ground, and says, I got great news, O king. Hold on to that. David then asks him, how did it go? You were there? You were at the battle? How did it go? The man tells him that people have died. The children of Israel have fled. King Saul and his son have died. And notice David's not taking this man at his word right now. And he keeps asking him these questions. And he asks him a third question, pressing him for details. How do you know that? How do you know that Saul is dead? How do you know that his son 
Jonathan are dead. Now look at me at verse 6. The young man said, it just so happens I was at Mount Gilboa by chance. He doesn't understand the providence of God, right? And, and, and Saul was leaning on a spear, and the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. So there, there are chariots and there are horsemen on a mountain. That should give some, well, wait a minute. Verse 7, he looked, he saw me, the, the king saw me, called to me. He said, here I am. Who are you, this king asked, verse 8. I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Saul said to me, stand by me and kill me. Anguish has seized me, and, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood by him and I killed him. I was sure that he was not going to live after his fall. I took the crown on his head. I took the armlet that was on his arm, verse 10, and I brought them here to my Lord. Now, you have to say, wait a minute. I hope you do. Last week, we looked at chapter 31. Remember, there's no, there's no breaks. The narrator's writing 31 into 1. It's, it's, there's, no, there's no chapters. And the narrator tells us a, a slightly different story. There's some, there's some similarities but there's something very particular in its difference. And that's particularly how the king died. In chapter 31, it said the Philistines overtook Saul. Saul fell on his own sword to kill himself. And then when the armor bearer saw that he was dead, he too fell on his sword and died. No mention of an Amalekite. No mention of another person actually wandering around. Two different stories. Some commentators think, well, you put them together. The, the, the arm bearer thought he was dead. He really wasn't. He killed himself. Saul was almost dead, not mostly dead. It's only one thing to do if he's all the way dead. What is that? Check his pockets for loose change. But, and the Amalekite, the Amalekite, Amalekite came and finished him off. He stripped him of his, of his, of his crown. He took his armlet. And here we have the story. Maybe. I don't think so. I join a lot of other commentators that simply say there's no contradiction here. The Amalekite's lying. He's lying. The Amalekite thought this was good news. He made up the stories rejoicing over the death of Saul and looking for a handout. What we have is the narrator in chapter, of, uh, in chapter 31 of, of 1 Sam, we have the narrator giving us a description, and here we have this Amalekite story about what happened, and it's not true. The Amalekites are portrayed in Scripture as, as someone who preys on weak people, showing no regard for the Lord at all, Deuteronomy 25. It would seem at least that the Amalekite <laughs> that is acquiring of this royal crown and armlet was more valiant of getting the stuff and helping Saul to die, to him that's a valiant move, rather than helping him live. And here's another thought. How does this Amalekite know who's in Mount Gilboa that David is in Ziklag? How does he know that? I mean, check Facebook. How do you know? Hey, I've, re I've returned home. The flight, coming back. He's there. And oh, by the way, the Amalekite, this Amalekite individual is very ironic He's the same guy, or from the same people, that David just went and destroyed and, and took back, who came and took his family, everybody, even the Amalekites. And now this Amalekite shows up and says, yeah, my, my people is the one that burned your city to the ground. My people are the one that, that took your wives and children. Yeah, I'm the Amalekite. And to add insult upon insult, the Amalekites, if you remember, were the people that Saul the king was told by God, commanded by God, to go and annihilate, destroy them all. He failed to do so. And the kingdom was taken. But like all lies, there's some truth. David appears to at least at this point believe the story. What is, what is also shocking is this, again, ironic, is this Amalekite is bringing the crown, paying homage, giving the, the king the, the, this, this royal bracelet to David. He's the first one to do this. David at one point was living in, in, in the Philistine area, living a lie, not telling the truth, raiding people that he, he says he wasn't, and now he's, I believe, he's being manipulated and lied to. Disturbing news. Look at a dreadful end. 
After hearing Saul is dead, his close friend Jonathan dead, he, he, look what he does. He, in verse 11, he tears his clothes in grief. It says, he mourned and he wept and he fasted all day until evening. And notice what it says. It doesn't say that David mourned over Saul and Jonathan alone. It says that David mourned here, at this point anyway, for Jonathan and, and Saul and, look what it says, for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel. And then it seems, if you look at verse 11, verse 12, and we get to chat, verse 13, uh, excuse me, verse 11 and verse 12, it seems that the narrator, again, is kind of giving a, 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 a flash, steps out of chronological order, and gives a flash of what happened during that day. They were mourning, they were weeping all day long. And I, and I think the point the narrator wants us to see before he gets back to the chronological order, we'll see that David is now questioning this Amalek. The Malachite again. I think the narrator wants to see that when, when David heard the news, what his response was, immediately, verse 11, tears his clothes and begins to mourn and weep. I do not think, in fact, I'm pretty sure, the Amalekite was not expecting that. Expecting rejoicing. It was good news. It was good news. I mean, some distress, maybe. But the guy who's been trying to kill you all the time has brought you so much grief is dead. And you're mourning and you're weeping. If the roles had been reversed and David was killed, they went back and told Saul, I don't think you would have saw this. I, I, I don't think so. I think at this point, too, I, I, this may be a little bit of stress, but I don't think it is. I think David... David, at this point, had some idea, maybe a really good idea, that God's judgment was coming upon Saul. I, I think David was expected as something by the Lord's hand, not by his, that something was going to happen, divine judgment was going to fall upon the king, but it did not stop. Listen, it did not stop David from mourning and lamenting and broken over the loss of life. Sometimes we see that. And people who are doing foolish things lose their life. And we think, ah. Ezekiel 18. God himself takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. David asks a lot of questions in our narrative. But right before he asks... The most important question, I believe, of the text in verse 14, which would be his fifth question. He asked, look at look with me at verse 13. He asked this question, and David said to the young man, where do you come from? Now, it appears right from, from the English version here that it's the same question, where do you come from, here in, that, in, in, uh, in verse 13. If you look at verse 3, it says, where do you come from? It's, it's a different question, just so you know, it's a different question in the Hebrew. The one in, 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 in verse 3, where do you come from, is, is more of where are you coming from, from what geographical location are you coming from. In verse 13 here, when he says, where do you come from, if you have an NIV, it says, where are you from? That's a better translation. Where are you from? In other words, what he's asking him is, what is your identity? I know where you came from, but who are you? Where do you come from in that sense? And look what he says. I am the son of a sojourner. An Amalekite. And David learned something very important here. That this Amalekite was not just from the, the, the tribe. He was the son of a sojourner. Which means he was a non-Israelite. But he had spent time. He, was, he had lived for, uh, for who knows amount of time. But plenty of time in Israel. Now he wasn't a full-fledged Israelite. But he enjoyed the, some, some privileges of being a citizen of Israel. He included justice under the law and penalties for violating it. And the difference is between someone maybe who shows up in America for a week or two that doesn't understand and someone who's been living in America for quite some time can't say the same thing like, you know, I, I, I don't know that big red thing said stop. Well, you've been here for three years. You should know by now, right? And, and that prompted this final question in verse 14. Look with me, the fifth question. How is it... You, a sojourner, not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. 
The Lord's anointed. Remember, in Scripture, the Lord's anointment is language of, uh, of one who's been chosen by God. One who's been set apart, anointed, Christed, Messiahed. Someone who's been, whether it's a priest or a prophet, or here we have a king. God did the anointing. God did the calling. God did the separating. And therefore, God does the finishing. That's why David refuses to touch, to kill the Lord's anointed. That's why David refuses others to kill the anointed. No one but the Lord had the right to take out his anointed. Unfortunately for the Amalekite, his privileged status as a sojourner, like, yeah, I'm part of Israel, didn't excuse him, actually added, I believe, his guilt. You see, he could not say, I didn't know it was right. Ignorance of the law was what? No excuse. Just in case you've never heard that before, don't try it. David regarded him deserving death. Verse 15, he received justice. David called out one of the young men and said, execute him. He struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. He was punished. Justice was brought because of what he said. I killed the Lord's anointed. He received justice for his admitted verbal crime. Now, this ain't the 21st century. There's not juries. He's the king. He heard the, he heard the evidence given by his own mouth. And he got the consequences. You know what they say, right, about lying? Tell one lie, tell another lie, tell another lie. Next thing you know, you're getting consequences. You wish, oh, man, I wish I didn't tell that lie before. Don't raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about, right? He says, your blood will be on your own head. In other words, you shall take full responsibility for participating in Saul's death because the blood you have shed is the cause of your own death. And the Amalekite, the irony is for this, you know, the Amalekite is thinking, I've got this crown for the king. I've got this armlet for the king. He's going to be so happy. I'm going to be, I'm going to be raised to the place of prominence in the kingdom. I can't wait to get to Ziklag. Here you go, king. Bows down, hands it to him. He goes from, this is a great day, to execute him. But you know what's interesting of this story is the similarities, really, between Saul and the Amalekite. Saul refused to bow his knee to the king of kings. Saul refused to understand his role as the under king, I should say, right? Small K to the giant K, the big K, the king of kings. He, he, he was not to rule the kingdom on his own authority. He was to rule under the authority of God. He was to seek God, he would to listen to the word of God. He would bow the knee to the king of kings, but he didn't do that. He didn't humble himself under the mighty hand of God. Saul took for granted God. God uh, Saul took for granted the, uh, the grace of God. He, he misappropriated his royal power. He had made many decisions over and over again to do what he wanted to do rather than seek the will of God or the word of God and the guidance of God. Saul made way too many assumptions about the power he inherited inherited in his new role as king under the kingdom of God and Israel. The Amalekite messenger also presumed wrongly about the Lord, wrongly about the nature of God, wrongly about God's kingdom and what it means to live in the kingdom of God. As we've seen earlier, I mentioned in Deuteronomy 25, the Amalekite used their power you can read in Deuteronomy 25. To get what they wanted, they attacked helpless ex-slaves from Egypt as they crossed the Sinai back in Deuteronomy. They raided defenseless Ziklag when they knew that the men were not there. And here the Amalekite assumes he can lie and twist his story as a means of seizing power, getting ahead in the kingdom that David will establish. But you know what? He doesn't know David all that well. He also has no idea what it means to be the anointed of God. Of course, the tragedy really here is, is King Saul. He did not understand what it means to be the anointed of God. He abused his role as king. He, he oppressed David. He lost sight. Saul lost sight of his mission under God to keep Israel safe. He lost sight of God's calling on his life. 
David will understand what anointed means. He, he, David, was the one who had opportunity twice to kill the Lord's anointed and refused to do that. And he is the one who brings justice upon the one who says he killed the anointed of God. But David will fall too. David will sin too. David will seek his own glory. David will seek his own satisfaction because every narrative, every story in Scripture, the hero is Jesus. God himself, he is the hero. David is another of God's anointed that will lead the way to the ultimate anointed one, David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And family, we need to understand what it means to live under that kingdom. To live under the king of kings. Jesus as our king, there's a total reversal of not only how one receives power, authority, but how one uses their power, influence, and authority. We, the children of God, are called to live as citizens of heaven, expressing the kingdom of God by using our power to love people, to serve people, to care for others, particularly the, the poor and the marginalized. It was Jesus who taught in, in Luke 22 when, when, this, when his disciples rose up and, and they're having this uh, dispute among who's going to be the greatest that Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. That's their kingdom. That's not for you. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather... Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. That's the kingdom of God. For who is Jesus, says the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Well, the world would say the one who reclines at the table. Jesus says, no, it is not the one who reclines at the table, but I have among you the one who serves. Look what I'm doing, serving you. I'm giving my life for you. Tim Keller rightly warns us, and he says this, be aware that you are citizens of one kingdom or the other. There are only two kingdoms. Paul says, he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 3. You are either, he says, a citizen of Jesus' kingdom or a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, end quote. We need to be careful. What kingdom are we under? What kingdom are we expressing in our life? The kingdom of this world Listen, the kingdom of this world emboldened self-promotion, getting ahead. Look out for number one. Use your power and do whatever it takes to get that in which your eyes have been set upon. That's the way of Saul. That is the way of the Amalekite. But we belong to a different kingdom, ruled by a different king. A kingdom where we do not need self-promote, to self-promote or use our power to get ahead. Because we have an advocate, one who died for us. Someone who died for us. Some, something we do not deserve. We belong to a kingdom where we already have everything we need. And more, Romans 8. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I don't think this means that we should not seek a better job. A promotion. I don't think that's what it means. I don't think it means that we must not try to work hard or to make money, but we must always remember that we belong to a kingdom that is upside down in comparison to what this world strives for. We are not against gaining power, making money. We're not to act as the world does, which loves money, uses people, loves power, and exploits people. We should love people and use money, use our position, use our power that God has given us to do good Amen. and not evil. To declare and demonstrate the gospel. Living lives, listen, living lives under this king, Jesus, of love and generosity because that is the gospel. In the gospel, we have been given unconditional love and infinite generosity at the giving of his son. We are called to live in such a way that makes this life and this kingdom very different and very attractive and glorious because God is glorious. God is enough. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And what? Give glory to the king, your father, who is in heaven. Disturbing news, dreadful end, distressing lament. Well, I have a few minutes for this. You could talk more about it in your community groups this week. Have you ever written a eulogy? 
sat down, had to write something, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Dear sister went home, on two, uh, went home last week. We had a service for her on Tuesday, and, and her daughter did her eulogy, and she just did a, just a, a wonderful job, just did a wonderful job honoring her mom. Writing out that, writing things out, or, 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 or doing a eulogy, saying things about the deceased brings closure, not only to the one reading it, but also for the folks listening to it. David writes his eulogy. Verse 17 says, David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. He said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book, and behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. And he said, verse 19, your glory, O Israel, he starts it by saying, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Your glory. Some of you may have, I just want to mention this quickly, in your translation, you might have beautiful same thing, glory or, or ornaments. It talks about the glory and the beauty of, of, of something. But some of you may have older translation. If it has the word gazelle in it, you say gazelle. Well, the word can be translated gazelle, and, and that would be a picture of, 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 of a king, the, the glories of this king, this, like, like, a, like a, a beautiful buck dying on a hill. And, and, and kind of like there's, there's Saul dead upon the hill of Gilboa. So, Translators have said that it could be translated that way. I, I prefer, I think, the context is glory, beauty, death of Saul, death of Jonathan, the mighty, look what it says, have fallen. It, it, it's a refrain. Uh, we'll see it three other, two more times in this poem. In other words, the beauty of Israel, the glory of Israel has fallen. Uh, what could have been is no longer O Israel, slain on your high places, feel the loss, feel, feel the grief. The greatness that once was is no longer. That's, what's, that's what uh, David is saying. And then he breaks into, I believe, some people say five. I, I, I think there are three stanzas here, if, you, if, you, if you're tracking with me. Verse 20 and 21 is one stanza, 22 through 24, 25 and 26, and then concluding verse 27. But we'll, we'll hit it quickly and, and as we move on. What do I got up there now? 17? Okay. Let's look at the first stanza. The first stanza of this lament, of this grief, David is making some, uh, saying something specific about the geographical location of the enemies of God. Verse 20. Tell it to Gath. We've seen this before. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughter of the uncircumcised exalt, okay? So, Gath should sound familiar. Gath is the home of Goliath. Goliath is probably the first Philistine that David ever met. It was certainly the first one he killed. He was a little boy, cut off his head. David ran there for refuge, and now look what he's saying. Tell it not to Gath. Remember, the last time he was there, he was buddy-buddy with the king. But here we see, I think, clearly what David's true commitment is to Israel and not the Philistines. He longed for the people of Gath that they may not hear of what had happened. And notice the irony. Look at the second part of verse 20. It says, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. David had killed the Philistines and the Israelite daughters were rejoicing and now the tables have turned. Now the Philistine women are rejoicing at the destruction of Israel. Ashkelon, one of the leading cities, the chief religious center. Those two towns are mentioned here as, as, as a representative of the town, or excuse me, the land of the Philistines. And his grief, David's grief, David's lament, was a deep desire that the news that the mighty have fallen might not be told there by anyone. He could hardly bear it that they are Dancing and exulting over the death of Saul, the people of Israel. This was a, I believe, like a godlike jealousy for the glory of God. Verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa, no dew, no rain upon you, nor fields of offspring. David is cursing the ground as, uh, uh, with barrenness. It's, it's the place where the shields lay. The corpses are, are dead. It's a disgrace. National disgrace. All over Philistia, the, the, the foolish were gathering and singing glory to Dagon. 
Look what it says. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. What, what he means by that, in those days the shields had, had metal studs in them and they would put oil on the shields. It would, it, would, it, would, it would help them in hand-to-hand combat. It would help deflect maybe a projectile that was, that was shot at them. But now they're covered in dirt. They're covered in blood. Saul, what a graphic symbol of the rejection of Saul. David longed, listen, this first stanza, for the impossible, that the Philistines might not hear of what happened. May it not happen. He's just grieving. Stanza 2, verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. He was a great warrior, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. David is, is, is lamenting over this geographical place, and now he's turning to say something nice. To, about David and, and to Jonathan. He's he articulating his, his gratitude about Saul and Jonathan, his gratitude and appreciation for Saul as memories of Jonathan, as memories of Saul come flooding back. David speaks of their, their warrior-like bravery, their, 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 their character. <laughs> David takes the old saying, if you don't have nothing nice to say, don't say nothing at all, to another degree. Right? There's always something you can say there's always something you can say nice about someone. Right? That's what he's doing here. Verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were, they were stronger than lions. Even though Jonathan made a covenant with David, even though Jonathan was loyal to David to some degree, even though Jonathan stood up for David while his father was trying to kill him, what he's saying is, he is loyal to his dad. He was loyal to his father, and David is, is giving him the kudos for that. Your daughters, verse 24, your daughters of Israel weep over Saul. Weep over Saul who clothe you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. There's some good things that happen under the kingship of Saul. David grieves for the daughters of Israel. Unlike the, the Philistine women to weep for Saul, he, 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 he's clo- he says, let them remember the clothing them, the, the king's daughters, the women. See what David is doing. He's mourning. He's remembering good things. Verse 25 is the last stanza. You know, you always find something nice, right? You always find something nice. Verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lay slain on the high places. I am distressed for you, Jonathan, my brother. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary. Suppressing the love of women who, how are, how are the mighty fallen. Huh. Refrain again. This last stanza, it, it kind of it steps out from the other ones. It is the deep grief of David. It is the relationship that David and Jonathan had, that special relationship, that covenant relationship they had with one another. And not only the covenant relationship they had, which we've seen before, but the idea that Saul's son, Jonathan, was next in line of the king to be king, and yet Jonathan knew the king would be David. There's, a, there's that kingship. There's that, there's that covenant reality to their relationship. And if you remember, the last time they saw each other, they wept. And it says in that text that David wept the most. Now, in this text, in verse 26, it says his love was surpassing the love of woman. Scholars, especially modern scholars have inappropriately taken that to suggest a sexual relationship between David and Jonathan. Some modern scholars have what they've done is very poor exegetical skills in interpreting the text in order to defend and justify homosexuality and their activity. And they do so at, at, the, at the expense of true exegesis, which means taking the text from the context in light of the context, and bringing meaning to it. So I, I know it's a sidestep, but I, I need to mention this. Maybe you've heard this before. So let me just give you a couple of guidelines in interpreting that passage. Number one, 
In that day, in ancient Israel, marriage took place primarily for the benefit of the tribe, to increase its size, to strengthen its social group. It was about the familial and the family and, and, and the tribe. And it was to bring procreation and prosperity in the tribe. Most marriages in those days were what? Prearranged. A man's wife was his partner in parenting and procreation, but not necessarily his best friend, confidant, or social peer. They didn't marry for love. That's rather new. I married for love. She's not here right now, but just in case. <laughs> I married for love. David, for David, Jonathan was the peer friend and confidant that no wife could have ever been in that culture. Number two, the noun here for love is used earlier when it's talking about covenant love. It is a word that's used in a political and many times a diplomatic uh, ways and particularly in covenant. David was in covenant relationship, not marriage covenant, but a covenant relationship between one man and one man in the sense of watching out for each other, uh, looking out for one another, trusting in God. That was their covenant. And it says they were sealed by that love, same word, a, a, a different word that's used in many places for the word love when it comes to man and woman. It would have to do with covenant. And number three, finally, homosexual acts were unequivocally condemned in Israelite law. It would be completely inappropriate, totally out of context, for the narrator, who is devoted in portraying David in a positive light, to describe him engaged in homosexual love with Jonathan. It is totally taken out of context to even read into that in light of its culture. Matthew Henry got it right a long time ago. He said, David, he, David, had reason to say that Jonathan's love to him was wonderful. Surely never was, li- never was the like for a man to love one who he knew was to take the crown off his head and to be so faithful to his rival. This far surpassed the highest degree of conjugal affection and consistency. The more we love, the more we grieve, end quote. Talk to soldiers about the camaraderie in the field. David wept over his friend. Were they close? Absolutely. They were in covenant relationship with each other. But to read anything more into that is, is, is wrong and exegetically incorrect. Verse 27, he closes, how the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war perish. David closes, echoes, and he's saying the same thing, but he's adding to it. I think he, he's talking about, when he says the weapons of war have perished, he's really talking about Jonathan. He's talking about David. He, he's facing reality. The, the battle, that battle is over. The weapons of war have perished. And David is teaching you, David is teaching me to grieve well, to lament well, to understand that Saul's death prepared the way for a new king. David is therefore, uh, David is pointing the way, not only to his kingship, but I think it's appropriate to say he's pointing the way to Jesus Christ. Because David will fall, as I said before. David will fall. All human leaders will fall. Death is inseparably linked to sin, human sin. And God's judgment, we know that from Genesis. Adam and Eve were told and promised that if they disobey, if they rebel against God, that death would incur. Paul said in Romans that the wages of sin is death, and just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin came into the world, and so death spread to all men because we're all sinners. Yet it was Jesus the Christ, the greater Son, by his own sin-bearing substitutionary death, resurrection from the day that conquered the sting of death, 1 Corinthians, has delivered us from the fear and slavery of death, Hebrews 2, has given us a living hope, we sing about that, that goes beyond death, 1 Peter 1. Death, it says in Revelation 21, is the last enemy of God to be destroyed. No place in God's kingdom when he restores all things. Revelation 21, God will be with his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away their tears from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the reality of the kingdom of God. That is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. It's a euphemism for death. That you may grieve, that you may not grieve 
as others who do not have hope. There are those who have died and there are those that grieve, but don't grieve as if one, as the same one who has no hope. Why, Paul? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There will come a time we will be raised to life. We will have eternal life. We will live under the kingdom of God as Jesus, our king, our Lord, and our savior will wipe away tears, will wipe away all lamenting and mourning from that kingdom. So as we grieve, as we look Let us look like David, look forward to that king, that joy. Look forward to the king coming. Every every tear will be wiped and sickness will be gone and death will be no more. Lord, we are thankful that death has been conquered. It doesn't make it easy. Some of us maybe dealing with death one way or another even today. We don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Lord, yes, we should grieve. Yes, we should lament. But Lord, we acknowledge as your people that the King of Kings has come. The King of Kings has lived a life we could never live. He followed and obeyed the law perfectly. He died in our place as our substitute, taking your full wrath and penalty against our sin on himself and was buried. There was lamenting, but joy in the morning. That's Sunday morning, Lord. The tomb is empty. We celebrate, Lord, the truth about life and death and about eternal life in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to trust you more today. Help help us to lament well, but let us also grow in our hope in you. In Jesus' name.